Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Diana Wiley. I'm your host of Love, Lust, and Laughter. Dr. Jordan Tischler, MD, is a cannabis specialist. He's been on this show twice before. The first time was actually on April the 20th, 420. And today is 418, two days away from 420. Dr. Tischler graduated from both Harvard College and Harvard Medical School. Dr. Tischler, welcome. And by the way, do you ever call that double H when you graduate? From <laughs> First, let me say thank you so much for having me back. It's always a pleasure and an honor. Um, and actually, there's an expression which is called Preparation H. And yeah. uh, that, yes, exactly. So uh, we try not to take ourselves too seriously. You know, many years ago when I lived in Hawaii, I had a show actually in a radio studio for five years. And cool. um, I had, uh, it was, um, it was called, um, uh, it, it, what was it called? It was over, over 50 successful aging and all of that. So I had the director of the Honolulu Symphony. His name was Sam Wong. And he was also a double H, but he did tell me at the time. And all I remembered was preparation rate. But he <laughs> he he got out of medical school at Harvard and then had to decide whether he was going to continue with medicine or direct um, symphonies. And he decided on the latter. But we talked about the healing benefits of music. And today we're going to talk about the healing benefits of cannabis and so much more. And of course, we're going to talk about sex and cannabis because that's what this show is about. But we're going to expand a little bit. Um, so there, there was um, a recent. Oh, I wanted to ask you first um, for updates. Um, you have, you do clinical work, and you do, and you have a lot of research and curated copies of uh, papers all up on your website, inhalemd.com. And um, could you give us a kind of a brief update of some of your most recent work, the most recent clinical work? Sure, you know, uh, well, we've been doing a bunch of clinical work as well as research, as you mentioned, and uh, it's, it's fascinating. The uh, interesting things on the clinical side um, are that cannabis continues to be helpful for patients. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a major step. And that doesn't mean just for sexuality, though that's a focus of our talk today, but certainly, you know, uh, there are a range of issues um, which intersect with sexuality, like pain and anxiety and those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so this continues to be uh, very useful for patients. I'm noticing, however, a disturbing trend, which is that uh, the cannabis dispensaries who have a fair bit of money at their disposal at this point are really pushing the narrative that their you know 20 year old bud tender is the person to come to to get uh medical advice whether you go into a medical dispensary or a recreational one uh and i find that that's a bit of a challenge because quite frankly anybody who's using this for treatment of any sort of a symptom or condition probably shouldn't be listening to the 19 or 20 year old, especially since as a sales agent, they uh, they have a particular conflict of interest 
uh, in, in trying to sell a lot of product. And I'm finding that this is oftentimes really derailing the, the treatment, both the benefit and the time it takes to get to that benefit for my patients. So I see this as kind of a an ongoing cultural shift that is for the negative. And, you know, I'm doing my best to call that out wherever I can. So thank you for a little airtime there. Oh, uh, of course. And, you know, so that's on the clinical side. And then you mentioned research and we have a yes. paper that's about to get published. So oh, I thought I might take a moment to uh, to talk about that with you. Please, please do. And I just um, I, I wanted to let people know that you do at, at inhale.com, uh, you do everything uh, virtually, right? Everything's online yes. with your everything patient. is and online and they're around the globe your patients absolutely how much, how much better to get advice about cannabis and all of its benefits and some problems for it possibly um from you rather than a 20 year old uh bud tender uh so and i'll i'll talk about your website more as we go along but tell us about your most recent research and it's about to be published huh cool um, so I was fortunate enough some years ago to meet a um, woman who is getting a PhD in clinical sexology. And, you know, at the time she said, you know, we want to be my dissertation advisor. And I'm like, yes. sure, you know, because she was looking at cannabis and sex. And obviously mm -hmm. that's my area of interest. And this relationship over time has morphed to the point where, uh, not just thinking about her dissertation, but we've really gone on and done um, a, a pilot study and now this full observational study. And we have plans in the works based on the outcomes that I'm about to tell you from the observational study to do a randomized control trial. And that I think, you know, that is the gold standard. And um, so, you know, the observational type studies are really important for figuring out the lay of the land. And this gives us information about the uh, use cases and the, and the benefits, but it doesn't prove the point. It really kind of, well, it, you know, it's an observational study. It describes the condition. And so this is the study that, that we've just finished and is about to be published. And so we were able to recruit, um, well, initially about a little over a thousand cannabis users, all females in this case, uh, oh. uh, because we were looking very specifically at what's called situational female orgasm disorder. And oh, excellent. <laughs> good. So we spent problem. a lot of time, you know, researching what had been done and said before. And the, there's a lot of really good cannabis and sexuality literature that pre-exists, including stuff from Kasman and Lynn um, and, and the new study that was published uh, in, in January or February that I know that you want to touch on. And the thing about those studies was that they were looking incidentally at orgasm because they were much more interested in sort of the broader category of uh, of of female experience so some of those studies looked at all types of sexual issues in women some of them didn't even look at at sort of dysfunction and they were just asking you know do women use cannabis and what 
do they experience as a result? And all of those studies really kind of hinted at the idea that women have more and better orgasms when they use cannabis. So we want to take this a step further and say, okay, but we want to focus specifically on the orgasm part of it. And we want to look specifically at women who are having trouble orgasming, not just sort of any woman at any time. Um, and so we were able to recruit in a, a little over a thousand women mm -hmm. and, um, through the process of including and excluding people for various uh, scientific reasons that, that winnowed down to uh, 387 women who completed the questionnaire and all that sort of thing, of which 52% or 202 women reported difficulty with orgasming in the situational or partnered setting, right? And, yes. and, you know, for your listeners, I think this is an important distinction. There are women who have trouble orgasming sort of uh, in different settings. Uh, but the one that we were looking at is women who have trouble having an orgasm with their partner, uh, which is different from, uh, you know, from other types of stimulation or self-stimulation, that sort of thing. And in fact, it's it's very interesting to have a woman who says, you know, when I'm having partnered sex, I can't have an orgasm or I rarely have an orgasm. But when I'm doing it for myself, there's no problem at all. And that really sets the stage for sort of what are the issues at play. And uh, we found a number of issues that women identified from, um, you know, anxiety, PTSD, other mental health uh, diagnoses, as well as relationship issues in communication with partners, et cetera. And um, so what we found, in fact, was that um, of these women who had the difficulty orgasming with a partner, almost 73% of them reported increased orgasm frequency. That's an astoundingly large percentage. 67% um, of them reported increased orgasm satisfaction. And 71% reported that it was easier to orgasm when using cannabis before sex. Um, even amongst the women who reported that they almost never or never achieved an orgasm uh, um, with, uh, without cannabis reported an almost 30% uh, benefit from using cannabis uh, with their partner. So this is pretty strong evidence that women, you know, who are having these difficulties are deriving a, a significant benefit. Well, and I, for years, because I, um, I've been the listeners, some of the regular listeners know this, but I've been in practice for 40 years now and, mm -hmm. and I've heard this from so many women, uh, that, that do tell me, oh, I have problems with, with orgasm. And usually that's in the, uh, initial session when I'm getting a history and all of that. And they almost always will say I can, when I masturbate, I can have an orgasm and especially if I'm using a vibrator and, um, but then the partner sex is so much harder, the situational, this, uh, and I, th I think it has to do with lots of things, but I want to hear, hear about your study. And I'm so eager to read it because you've gone beyond the antidotal, uh, um, observational only 
to you have this randomized control study. That's we need so many more of those around cannabis, but it's hard to get the funding. How did how did you do that? <laughs> um, in this case, we were entirely self-funded. Uh, okay. So because that may be the way, that may be the, way for, for the time being until the federal government uh, legalizes it. Yeah, you know, it also just depends on the kind of study that you want to do. So these observational studies, which are based on uh, um, structured questionnaires, you uh, the costs are really in the deployment, meaning, you know, you do it through some sort of a science oriented uh, questionnaire online system. In this case, it's called Qualtrics um, and is well known. Uh, and that costs a fair amount of money on an annual basis. And then you have to pay to somehow get, you know, women's eyeballs on the fact that the study exists, which means printing flyers or postcards or that sort of thing. But because my PhD student has some time on her hands to be devoted to this, she was able, for example, to print those flyers and then run around to a bunch of dispensaries in Florida where she's based and actually wow. hand them to the, the dispensaries and to get them to agree to distribute it. And that's how you get women enrolling in the study. When you start talking about randomized control trials, it's much more complicated because you need um, you know, just a whole lot more machinery as well as you need to actually be giving the the subjects the cannabis and and the me methods to use the cannabis. And uh, and so that's going to be interesting. So that's our next step. And uh, we're absolutely looking for funding for that. We've got a bunch of grants to which we're applying and that sort of thing. You know, there are uh, sorry, it's gradually changing, isn't it? But um, it is, you know, I, I some of the best research about sexual pleasure comes out of Canada, and you know this of uh, <laughs> sexual pleasure, and and Canada now has legalized cannabis too for recreational use. So, but they but they can, Canadians don't have a problem funding sex sexual studies that involve pleasure, whereas the U.S. we seem to have a problem with that. You know, it's funny for two countries that at least originally stem from much the same origins, mm -hmm. uh, we just somehow have backed ourselves into some very odd cultural corner. But that's not just related to sex or cannabis. It's, you know, our country is in a very odd spot at the moment, and for perhaps sure. we should leave it there. Perhaps we should. Well, I'm but, you know, when when is this going to be published? Uh, I don't know that I can tell you that it's still oh, okay. sort of in that submission stage so that, you know, it's not like you have a date. But but, you know, there are a few other points from the study that I think you'll find very interesting Please. having to do with some of the underlying causes that we we discovered. I mean, not that any of these are rocket science, but it's nice and sort of the first time that we've been able to nail these down in any sort of quantitative fashion. It turns out that, not surprisingly again, mental health is the huge issue, right? I mean, yes. that's why therapy works. Um, what we found was that the majority of women who did uh, reported difficulty with orgasm had some mental health diagnosis. That was 64%. Or and or taking some sort of prescription medication, 61 percent, 
And the largest group of women reported anxiety disorder, which was 47%. Yeah. Um, they, women with difficulty in orgasm reported 24% more mental health issues, 53% more PTSD, and 29% more depressive disorders than the women who did not have difficulty with orgasm. You know, so what well, this points out is, to me is that we've got, you know, mental health issue and it's spilling over into all areas of our life. Absolutely, it is. And it makes sense because people that have, oh, sexual abuse is a big one, right? In their past, it's yes. very hard to be in the moment and to not have fears. I I understand that the amygdala gets overloaded when you have a a, a lot of abuse in your in your childhood. And so you're more prone to anxiety and depression. And it's so much harder to not feel fear. You need to feel a woman really needs to feel safe with her partner and for her to let go, let mm -hmm. go, let go, let go and have an orgasm or several. And yes. So, you know, there are a number of interesting uh, theories on how orgasms come to pass. Um, and, you know, one of them is called the altered state theory. And essentially it says that in order to get to the point of orgasm, a woman needs to let go, to use your words, to the point at which she ends up in some sort of a not usual state of consciousness. And this yes. is very interesting because the sort of co concepts around not usual states of consciousness also trickles over into the cannabis literature, trickles over into the um, uh, psychedelic research, all of which really essentially say that in order to achieve that kind of liberation and the benefits therefrom, we have to shut down certain parts of our brain that are very important in other times, like fear and vigilance and those sorts of things that, you know, frankly, allow us to do things like drive a car, right, and pay right, attention right. and stuff like that. But while you're trying to come, that's not high on the list of of um, of achievable goals or goal things that help achieve that goal. Uh, so that medications like cannabinoids that, as you say, tamp down the expression of the amygdala, uh, mitigate some of the um, unpleasant memories, for example, that we see in folks who have PTSD or, or uh, abuse history that is that are housed and retrieved from the hippocampus, which is intimately connected to that amygdala, as yeah. well as, you know, chilling out the frontal cortex, which is the part that's responsible for the shoulda, coulda, you should, you know, all of that super ego stuff that, you know, Freud used to talk about, right? All of that societal uh, or parentally imbued and maintained, you know, this is the right thing, this is the wrong thing, all of that gets tamped down as well and allows the woman to be in the moment. I think that we have to talk about religiosity. Religions uh, really affect the frontal cortex with, um, I mean, I'm I'm seeing a Mormon guy right now, not his wife, but he has so much shame from his growing up. And he's, he claims that the, that the Mormon church is really based in shame. 
And it just as he he was a virgin till he was 28 years old. And he now has all kinds of problems, but it he there's so much shame in some religions about uh, sexuality. And so it makes it hard to function normally and to, to have orgasms. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think, you know, uh, there are many religions commonly practiced throughout the world where control of reproduction Mm-hmm. was the goal and other behavioral um uh, other behaviors control of those other behaviors and you know at at some point maybe that was important for the development of the community and the survival back you know prehistorically but right. clearly this has marched forward over the last 2000 plus years and become uh enshrined in a way that ends up being a whole lot less positive and, and and really harming people and leaving them with this shame and stigma that you mentioned. And I, I find that uh, really very sad. Um, and, you know, religions seem to play a large role, an important role in our society still. Um, but I wish that it were a more generally positive thing um, or at least I wish people were able to get more positive from them than it seems the case. Absolutely, I agree. So anything else you want to say about your most recent research? Uh, before I, I want to mention um, some Stanford research, um, mm-hmm. and you probably are familiar with this. Anything else that you want to say before I move on? No, I think I think that's the gist of it. I think that, you know, actually the Stanford research is very similar um yeah yeah and uh you know but that that's good because the thing we want is multiple studies that show similar truths rather than showing things that that leave us scratching our head well how can these things all be the case right so the fact that it's corroboratory is right. is exactly what we're hoping for assuming that we're not seeing that because it's biased right Exactly, exactly. So um, Michael Castleman has a blog on psychology today. He happens to be a friend of mine. He's a, he's, um, a wonderful uh, writer and wrote uh, Sizzling Sex for Life most <clears throat> recently. And um, anyway, he he's a regular contributor, has a blog on psychology today. And the key points from the Stanford uh, study was that Um, as cannabis becomes increasingly legal, many studies show that most users report better sex. That's one key point. Another is that the Stanford report shows that increased desire and arousal for most women and improves orgasms and satisfaction. Okay, what you were just (laughs) talking about. Yeah. For most men, the Stanford report (laughs) showed cannabis improves erections and increases orgasms and satisfaction. And they also point out that cannabis doesn't improve sex for everyone, but the research shows that two-thirds of the users report sexual benefits. And your study broke down a little bit that way, too? Two-thirds were... Yeah, uh, you know, what we found was that most of them uh, uh, got benefit, but it was definitely not 100%. 
you know, and in some ways, from a right. sort of well, scientific yeah, point of view, that, really. we wouldn't expect it. But if you saw it, you'd be you'd be very critical. Right. So the fact that there were some women in our study that, or, you know, didn't get benefit is too bad, of course. But uh, but it lends some credence to the fact that this is, in fact, a specific set of reactions and not just some like, sure, you smoke some weed. And of course it did that because that's what they expected. Right. So the um, you know one yeah, of the things that it's, that, uh, if those yes I was just going to comment on the on the male side of things um, that it's really great that they're looking yeah, at men because frankly oftentimes men get left out of this particular equation. Um, certainly, they're overrepresented in other areas of science, but in the sexuality literature, there tends to be a real void around looking at men's experience. Um, there's sort of this assumption that uh, as long as the guy ejaculates, then it must have been fine. Um, and that's clearly not actual. actual. Um, but, you know, I wonder if they looked at all at dosing because... You know, I think we talked about this last year in men, the dosing is really quite critical, uh, more so than for women, because if you use too much cannabis, then you lose your erection and things kind of generally grind to a halt. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in I'm going to mention this other uh thing about as far as men are concerned um so the university well we're back to canada the university of british columbia researchers surveyed 216 cannabis users these are men who frequently used it three quarters of them said it increased their sensitivity to erotic touch and improved their sexual satisfaction two-thirds said it boosted the pleasure of orgasms 59% said it increased their sexual desire. Only 5% said it spoiled sex. And um, maybe those 5% were the ones that had uh, some mental illness. <laughs> you know? or, or, or maybe those are the people who weren't paying attention to how much they were using, at which point, you know. Oh, of course. Heard, of right? course. Just said that too much, they can lose their erection. Right. The penis is a very sensitive organ, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, you know, I mean, my contention always has been that men and women are not as different as we make them out to be. Uh, yeah. You know, the shape of the orga, orga, organs is different. But in fact, all of the nerves are the same. All of the structures yeah. are the same in terms of their origins and their function, they're just shaped differently and so that they fit together. I think that we as a society like to split groups, right? Men, mm -hmm. you know, uh, like to rail about how women are X, Y, and Z, and women say men are this way and that way. And I think, you know, that that probably sells L magazine really well, but, <laughs> but it isn't necessarily accurate. And it really contributes to division and stigma and lack of communication between partners, assuming in this case, a hetero group, you know, I mean, when you were talking about your patient and all of that shame, that, I mean, it's great that that, that man is able to talk to you. Um, but obviously, 
ultimately what he needs to do is be able to talk to his wife about that so that they can work through that and come to something that is that feels right you know that feels safe and doesn't provoke that shame and then they can enjoy their sexual encounter and the only way for that to happen is for them to really talk to each other and that's impeded by all this well you know men are from mars and women are for venus or whichever way that was supposed to go yeah that's right that's exactly right and i'm hoping to get his wife on board but so far She's trying to be his therapist, which is not a good idea in this case, because they don't communicate very well. And and uh, communication is at the base of everything, isn't it? So often the message is not the message received. It kind of goes, you know, if you're putting your hands together, they don't tip, tip to tip fingers. It goes above. I'm demonstrating it now, but you can't see it. (laughs) So the message sent is not the message received. And helping couples with good clear communication is the best way to have good sex with 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 the basis of lots of information that's what this show is about uh we all do better when we have more information good solid information and that's why i have now for many many years prn i've been on it for 13 years um as i said in hawaii i had a show for five years i love doing uh media work because it's a way to get out good solid information uh, especially about relationships and sexuality and there's so much misinformation out there oh my yeah a lot of misinformation about cannabis too so this is a way to get out good information and so it's it's something that and i have you know from my acting days uh my performing days i have a little bit of leftover uh performance stuff and mm-hmm. and this is a really good way to m- meet those needs i mean i i like to to be a speaker and i don't ever seem to have um anxiety about speaking i don't think you do either dr tischler <laughs> i've been at this a while too so yes. yeah yeah and so yeah it's just uh you know i i happen to work with a number of asian couples and um the, and and that includes Indians because they're South Asian, right? Mm-hmm. And they don't. And in China and in Japan and in India, and I've had clients from all those countries. The sex education is practically non-existent. So I have to really. I, I mean, I remember talking to one Indian guy, and he and his wife. So many of them want to have a child, but they don't know how to have even intercourse, and he didn't even know what the clitoris was or what it, where it was and what it was for and i have one of these little puppets you know these hand puppets mm-hmm. all the parts so i was able to um show him the clitoris with that and then also some nice drawings that betty dotson had done mm. <laughs> so but really sex education is so needed and we do better when we know more Absolutely. I actually remember when I was a resident, so a bajillion years ago, when I was doing OBGYN, that um, we had a case of infertility uh, in a Middle Eastern couple. 
Mm-hmm. And it was just what you're talking about. They were having intercourse and nothing was happening. And the and the they finally made it to the fertility specialist. And the fertility people did all this testing on the anatomy and the sperm. And it was all looking fine. And then I think there was a, a medical student in the clinic that day. And they discerned that they were using the wrong hole. Oh, dear. You know? You know, and of course that doesn't work, but it also took like, you know, whatever that was months and probably tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of workup to, you know, get to the point that the problem here was a knowledge gap, right? Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. And, you know, I've been, I continue to learn things. Um, I'm doing all kinds of reading all the time, but I, I love to, you know, of course the sign of six, one of the signs of successful aging is to remain curious mm. and to learning new things. And I am delighted that I'm at an age coming up on 80. I can't believe it, but no. And, and I've been on bioidentical hormone replacement therapy for 25 years, which has helped. Uh, I've had a little cosmetic work, which has helped, but mostly I remain sexual. Um, and with my husband, and he is the best lover. He's just fabulous. And this is perhaps a good segue into talking about uh, cannabis helping with pain and healing. And I just wanted to share, this is personal, but mm. on the 17th of February, I had abdominal surgery. Two pieces oh. of my colon. There was a fistula, which allowed air to get into my bladder. And so the colorectal surgeon, bless his heart, he didn't, he did it so well that he didn't have to put an ostomy bag on, which I was terrified about. To be sure, yes. So I woke up and there was no bag. And all all I really want is a designer bag with a match. (laughs) Right. If it's Gucci bag, it would be okay, right? Yeah. Anyway, it was pretty serious. Um, But it went well and I was healing well. And, um, I used, at, at that point, I didn't smoke uh, cannabis with my husband, who who was my caretaker. He was caregiver. He was just a wonderful guy. But, so that was the 17th of February. So two weeks later, we resumed smoking cannabis and having some sex. Now, we started with outer course because, of it, because I wanted to make sure my abdominal muscles, because I'm easily orgasmic were in good shape you know not still they were still healing right mm-hmm. so, but so the the sex that we had and then we eventually went on to intercourse and i got back to having orgasms and my abdomen the whole thing the cannabis r- resuming sex uh our happy laughing relationship <laughs> uh just it all ca- it, it was a confluence of things that helped me heal and I am doing very well now, you know, at three, how, how many weeks out since February, March, April. So it's, uh, two months out, yeah. three months. Yeah. And I, I say it's because of my remaining sexually active and yes, cannabis use, it helped with the pain. It was better. It was better for the pain than the uh, opioids. And I didn't want to take too many of those anyway, because you didn't get yeah. addicted. You know, 
the truth is that the addiction to opioids is a significant problem, but there are other problems that are, you know, that are even more likely and they're maybe not quite as, um, you know, momentous, but they're, you know, imagine as you can actually imagine that your yeah. belly is sore and you're healing and now you've taken a bunch of opioids and now you can't poop. Right. So, you know, you're yeah. filling up like a, a balloon and you're trying to poop and the muscles that you need to use to help poop are all sore and raggedy. I mean, yeah, opioids are necessary in some instances, but the reality is that when it comes to treating pain, the problem is we just don't have a lot of medicines to use, right? I mean, we've got Tylenol and Motrin and those do what they do and they can be helpful sometimes, but sometimes they're not enough where there are reasons people can't take them. And then after that, we're kind of like into the opiate territory. I mean, there are a few that, you know, hand wavy things we could try also. But but bottom line is you end up at the opiates very quickly in in those situations. And so bringing cannabis just onto the table for discussion increases our options by about, you know, 25 to 50 percent. And that's huge. And it doesn't come with that risk of addiction or at least the same level. It doesn't come with the constipation. It doesn't come uh, uh, with the risk of killing you by stopping your breathing. I mean, it, it it's not a cure-all. It doesn't fix everything. Sometimes with cannabis, you still need some opioids. But we also have studies on that, and it turns out that you usually can reduce the amount of opioids somewhere between 40 and 80 percent by using cannabis first line. And, and so that's huge. That is huge. I was very lucky because I didn't have the constipation problem, but I also didn't take very many opioids because I right. had the cannabis. Exactly. And it, it worked. It really did work. So I, I've, I've never had anything like this before. I've been blessed with good health my whole life. Uh, so this is, um, I don't know what this is. It's probably somewhat related to aging. Uh, maybe the diverticulitis I had before, but I don't know. But what I do know is that the cannabis helped and having healing sex helped too. A good, gentle, lovely, touching, healing, erotic sex. So you just feel good and you get those endorphins going and that helps with the healing, doesn't it, Dr. Tischler? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, there have been some studies that, you know, are preliminary, but there were some interesting studies that showed that the oxytocin that's released in the process of sex and orgasm may, in fact, help um, mitigate early dementia. Oh. Now, it doesn't mm. mean that it will prevent dementia. It doesn't mean that you won't, that it will slow down the dementia, but it seems that oxytocin can in fact sort of help rejuvenate somebody's memory function for some period of time. And how well that works and all that sort of stuff is still, you know, yet to be described. But there are groups out there that are actually researching oxytocin and analogs of oxytocin to make medicines that they think will help improve cognitive function in early Alzheimer's type dementia. That is fascinating because we know that oxytocin can produce a, a, a sense between a couple when they're when they're making love and there's a, a partner kind of orgasm, either one or both have them, but usually it's just one that the sense of bonding and right. trust increases. But I hadn't heard about 
the dementia. I, I, I but it does it does make sense um, because there's another study about Alzheimer's and it, it a longitudinal study going back to the seventies with a whole lot of people in it. I just read about this recently. And they found that a big thing was how much has the person exercised in their life. It's all about sure. blood flow, isn't it? Blood flow. <laughs> got to get blood flow to the brain. We got to get it to the vagina. We've got to get it to the penis. Blood flow. Exercise is good. Is good. Absolutely. And, and sex, sex is really good exercise. exercise. Yep. Sex exercise. <laughs> and sex is play. I'm so glad you mentioned the oxytocin study. I want to look into that a little bit more because... I I feel like, you know, I want to have I want to have sex as long as I can possibly have sex. It's just such a great thing, and I'm so happy about it. It makes my husband happy too. Um, so I want to talk about laughter and and uh, because cannabis um, often uh, allows us to be because it breaks down some inhibitions for some people. And it allows them to be uh, silly, more silly. And what mm. I think is really interesting is the word silly did not, not originally mean ridiculous or trivial. It comes from the old English word, and that word was selag, S-A-E-L-I-G. And selag originally, the old English, meant blessed, prosperous, happy, and healthy. Huh. That's Silliness. pretty far off its common use now. Exactly. So silliness may be a way to feel all four things. I think people can get into a laughing, silly, you know, we all have a giggling three-year-old some, somewhere. Somewhere in there. <laughs> so you've got to let out the playful child so that your relationship can be rejuvenated. And it turns out that a good laugh, maybe like a good cry or, or good sex, is a natural tranquilizer. And as I understand it, uh, uh, physiologically, you know, you get a slight raise in heart rate and blood pressure during the laugh itself, and the body muscles almost immediately relax and blood pressure drops. At the same time, the brain releases endorphins. And of course, the, these are nature's own opiate, opiate, opiates, opiates, am I pronouncing mm -hmm. that right? Yeah. Okay. So, so, and then laughing is a natural stress buster. It's, a, nope. it's like a form of internal jogging. And what a nice way, what a great way to get the lungs to move and the blood to circulate. And I just, I think it's, it, it can exercise the heart and boost the mood. And it's often, it's often brought on by just being so relaxed because you're a little stoned. <laughs> That's it. You know, um, first of all, I want to remind, remind everybody, laughter is the best medicine, right? Yes, uh, it is. But and other... also, also, I just to say this: couples who laugh together last together. Last. Oh, I like that. I like that. That's and good it's really I'm... true. Yeah, I have to, I have to say that to my wife. Well, yeah. you know, a lot of the the early research on um, you know runners high and the sort of uh, that kind of relaxation and uh, um, sense of contentment and stuff like that was actually ascribed to the endorphins, these internal opioids that you mentioned. More research, more recent research has actually suggested that, in fact, it's an increase in internal endocannabinoids more so than the 
um, endorphins that are responsible. I don't know that I've seen much in the way of tiebreaker research at this point, but it is interesting to think about the idea that um, that the the response that you're describing um, is in fact much more like what we would expect from those what we see with phytocannabinoids than with exogenous opiates, right? And so it's it's just poor scientific evidence, but it is to me at least more believable that the internal that the response is stimulated by internal cannabinoids just because it seems more similar to what we see from the from the uh, inhaled or or otherwise ingested cannabinoids. So in that's that's also very interesting. So we know that uh, cannabis can really lower inhibitions. It it can help. It can also help um, with so being silly and laughing. Uh, if people have a problem with that, uh, other you know some people don't at all. But but also um, having. Uh, Body image, you know, so many women are just so caught up in body image, negative body image, and they have trouble just showing their bodies and loving their bodies. And and some women even get so caught up with their body image that they worry about how their face looks when they're having an orgasm. Can you believe? <laughs> uh, you know, yes, I can believe. I find that human <laughs> beings have a remarkable propensity to make issues out of non-issues and to generally speaking beat themselves and their important people up over these things and from an outside point of view you can easily say yeah what are you doing this is this is nonsense but the problem is it's not nonsense to them and exactly. so we have to be able to address this frankly in a less stigmatizing way than what i just said right in something yeah. that's supportive and allows uh, these people to you know step a little outside themselves and look at these these hang-ups or whatever we want to call them and acknowledge that they're not necessarily based in reality and that they're harmful and then they they have free will that they have some control over how they perceive these things and how they react to these things and so that maybe the answer is not another you know tummy tuck or or botox but rather to you know work on feeling more comfortable in in his or her skin uh, yeah. so that then they can then be a better or more available partner in their relationship. And really, the, the cannabis can often help disinhibit. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, so I think that that, that helps a lot. And then uh, the, the if we're talking about heterosexual relationship, the man really needs to reinforce and be very gentle and loving and appreciative of his partner's body because most men you know they within minutes they they're just so happy to have their partner naked with them that they're not going to be looking at her sagging breasts or her chubby thighs they're just so happy they're not they're most men are not critical women are critical but most men are not critical of their partner's bodies i would say oh i think you're right i think most men are like look there's a goddess who's naked and wants to have sex with me. I'm good, you know, and they're not really worrying about 
the particulars of whether lefty matches righty or whatever it is that you know, we get hung up on some very interesting things. And, um, and, and furthermore, our society being the capitalist uh, engine that it is figures out ways to capitalize on that, whether it's, you know, plastic surgery or going, you know, gym memberships or selling self-help magazines or books and unfortunately, what that ends up doing is reinforcing, uh, to the benefit of those sellers, uh, all of the the uncomfortable stigma that we would really be better off trying to eliminate. Absolutely. Um, so I also we we've done this in past shows. This is our third show together. Yes, Dr. it's awesome. So happy about that. Um, so but and we've talked about uh, alcohol and cannabis and how cannabis is really the better choice could could you review that because of course people if you want to go back and hear our interview it's in the archives on my website drdianawiley.com and also on prn's website prn.fm uh but my website might be easier so you can it, this show will be archived by about tomorrow because uh, because anyway, so can you just give us a quick review of how cannabis really is so much better for you than alcohol? Uh, sure. I mean, I think that you've said it already. Cannabis is probably better than for you in many ways. Uh, certainly, we have to understand that alcohol is really sort of fundamentally a toxic substance. It's toxic to our neurons. It's toxic to our liver. It's toxic to our bone marrow. It's toxic to our heart. And you know what? We can get away with ingesting a smallish amount of that, and it probably won't hurt us. Um, but there is a line there, and for some folks, they you know, approach that line just too often, and that's not good because it's a kind of a cumulative effect. And then there are people who blow way past that line, and that's sort of a more obvious harm. Uh, I, I wouldn't be the, anyone to say no alcohol ever, um, but I think it is something that uh, many people do to excess. And frankly, again, in our society, because it's so well accepted that the person who chooses not to partake, myself included, um, find themselves in kind of uh, an ostracized category. Um, cannabis, on the other hand, is not inherently a toxin. I often say about alcohol, look, alcohol is yeast poop. That's really what it is. It's the, bi the the waste product of yeast's fermentation, which is how they live. And that, you know, byproducts uh, or, or waste products are not good, right? I mean, that we try to eliminate waste products right, from our body. Yeah. yeah. The cannabinoids, the phytocannabinoids, the cannabinoids we get from the plant are interestingly work with our own internal system called the endocannabinoid system that we have because it is an important part of how our bodies regulate themselves and keep us healthy and in certain circumstances uh whether we're talking about ptsd or pain or any of those sorts of things what we find is that our endocannabinoid system isn't working or it isn't working sufficiently 
And then by using cannabinoids, these phytocannabinoids, cannabinoids from the plant, we can support or otherwise treat these problems. Uh, and, and, and it's very much not the sort of analogy to taking in some sort of a deliberately taking in some sort of a poison. That that is a you know I that's just fascinating and I I don't think you mentioned last time that alcohol is essentially yeast poop because <laughs> it's waste and uh be, but alcohol has been obviously has been socially um it's it's our main form of socializing and it's just and I think it's going to take a little more time for cannabis to be to be more accepted. And so that say at a country club, instead of cocktails, I think this is going to take a long time, but I think so too. Although, you know, on the recreational side, there's been an interesting set of products being developed that are sort of cannabis infused soda or seltzer water and stuff like that. Oh yeah. And, you know, I'm not sure how comparable they are in terms of the social setting, uh, but it's interesting that people are out there trying. Yeah, I do want to make one uh, warning since we're talking about these things, and yes. that is um, alcohol has an effect on cannabis, and it has to do with the way the alcohol interacts in the bloodstream with those circulating cannabinoids. And so in many instances, the... Um, you know, people go out and they say, look, I'm going to have a little bit of alcohol and a little bit of cannabis. And I kind of know what each one of those things does. The problem is that they think one plus one should equal two and biochemically one plus one in this case equals eight. And so you can, in fact, take a little of both and actually end up quite surprised at how stoned you are. Um, And in fact, recreational users often do this deliberately to sort of boost the effect. But for people who are new to this or new to combining them, I often warn people, just kind of take it easy uh, and, and, and go slowly so that you don't end up in the deep end of the pool. That's such good advice. Go slowly so you don't end up at the deep end of the pool. Start low, go slow, right? And you even suggest that if you're new to this, that you start out uh, with masturbation, um, just alone oh, be the effect, just with cannabis. Absolutely. I think that, you know, we've spent the last hour talking about relationships, and those are yeah. really at the core of our being, but they're complicated and messy. And the last thing you want to do is experience the feeling of intoxication from cannabis for the first time while you're trying to juggle, you know, all of your anxiety, PTSD or whatever, plus your partner's, you know, what's going on here? Are we going to have sex? Are we not having sex? Is it working? Is it not working? Right. I mean, that's kind of a setup for an explosion. Uh, yeah. So definitely the the best approach, if we're thinking about using cannabis for sexuality, is to start out doing this solo so you kind of get down what it feels like. And then you'll be in a position to not only enjoy sex, but also to focus on those relationship issues with your partner so that it really works to everybody's benefit. Oh, you're so wise and experienced, and I want people to, Dr. Jordan Tischler, to go to your website, which 
It's so thorough. I mean, you just have so many curated papers there, and we'll look for your new research soon. But the um, the website is Inhale, and I'll put this in the show notes, inhalemd.com. And um, I just thank you so much for returning to this program. You, you always give us so much information, and you're so articulate and I Thank appreciate you, you Dr. Tischler. Well, I appreciate this as well. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to be on your show and to talk with you. You always ask me such interesting questions that I can't help but, you know, hold forth on them. So thank you. Oh, what a nice thing for you to say. Uh, we have a local advice columnist, Dan Savage. He, he also has a nationally syndicated, but uh, I'm going to quote him right now. It's kind of a nice way to end the show. So yeah, get high and have sex. It's amazing, or it can be. Pot can make you silly. It can make you playful. It can put you in the moment. Put you in the moment, and that's really true, isn't it? You need so to be true. in the moment. Yeah. Sounds like good advice. It's good advice. You've given us lots of good advice, and I appreciate it, and we'll have you back. Maybe you'd even come on. Doesn't have to be close to April twentieth, does it? <laughs> nope. I will be here when you ask. Oh, bless your heart! <laughs> Thank you, Doctor Tischler. <laughs> well, uh, so everybody, uh, the the archive show will be up by tomorrow. I'll write the show notes after. I have a couple more clients. I'm in Seattle, so I'm on West Coast time. Doctor Tischler is on East Coast time. He's in Boston, and. Um, so, but by tomorrow, you should be able to go to my website and uh, see the show notes. And hopefully you're listening to this even later so that you can benefit. And any feedback you want to give to Dr. Tischler or to me can be done through our websites. Right? Don't you take Sounds feedback? lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, anybody who goes to my website, they can email me and I generally respond very quickly. Um, I want to be available to people. So, you know, anybody who wants to head over to inhalemd.com, read some articles and uh, and get in touch. And get in touch. Yes. And if we learn how to use cannabis and to our best advantages, There'll be lots of more touching, lots more exploration, <laughs> lots more discoveries. It's just so much fun. Uh, and I'm pleased. I'll do one more. You said you don't drink at all. I used to be a, a kind of a party girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I and my last husband before this one died. And, and we lived a, a rather privileged life in Honolulu. And uh, socializing with some of the one percenters, you know, and wow. heavy drinking oh, among yeah. these people, and and I I got into too much alcohol, and I'm so pleased because my current husband and he's been on the show with you the last couple of times. Mm-hmm. He he's the one who really got me into cannabis, and I'm so and we've been together thir- thirteen years now, so married for five, yeah. And I'm so grateful for that because I'm a much healthier person because of it. And I just went through this surgery much better because of it. So Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. All right, Dr. Tischler, thank you again. And we'll do this again. Sounds great. Right. Good. Take care. Bye, everybody. And a couple days from now, enjoy 420. Bye. <laughs>